Hey, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Gillian Hadfield, who is Professor of Law at the University of Toronto and is also the inaugural Schwartz Reisman Chair in Technology and Society. Gillian has written articles on really an eclectic range of topics, and so our interview hits on questions in a bunch of different areas, including law, economics, and artificial intelligence. We begin the interview by talking about why humans invented law in the first place, and what Gillian describes as the demand side for legal infrastructure. We then move on to discuss why social norms continue to be really important, and look back all the way at ancient Athens and how it managed to function on a largely decentralized system of collective punishment. Gillian then lays out her paper on regulatory markets and her vision for how governments in the 21st century can keep up with these rapid advances in technology. And lastly, we conclude the interview by talking about Gillian's idea of silly rules and why lots of seemingly arbitrary norms actually play a really important role in society. As always, we've included links and further readings in our write-up, but without any further ado, here's the episode. Okay, I'm Gillian Hadfield. I'm a professor of law and a professor of strategic management at the University of Toronto. And I'm director of a new uh, institute, the Schwartz-Reisman Institute for Technology and Society at the University of Toronto. A problem I am currently stuck on, I mean, it's a, it's a big one, which is how are we going to build machines, artificial intelligence, that can navigate our normative world, can integrate well into the normative world that humans uh, have built. And this is a big problem. It's a problem to be stuck on because actually the normative world is really, really complicated. And I think many of our current approaches kind of take it for granted and assume it's going to be like just reading facts in the environment. So yeah, sort of a fairly abstract 30,000 foot level. That's the problem. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll delve into lots of these problems during the course of our interview. But as you said, this is a huge problem, which has got so many different angles on it, right? Computer science to philosophy and to, as you mentioned, law and economics. And I'm really curious about what kind of attracted you to this intersection of both law and economics. Uh, Before I started reading your work, these were very much like two different disciplines. And I found it really exciting how you've been able to merge these two. It actually goes back to my undergraduate days. I was actually, it took me a very long time to settle on a discipline because I was just interested in everything. And I just treated the, you know, the course listings as kind of a buffet. Oh, I'll have one of those and one of those. And so I ended up in this social and political philosophy class where I read John Rawls, A Theory of Justice. And as I read that, I'd taken a bit of economics. Um, It was really uh, a merger of, on the one hand, thinking about the big questions about what's the right, the fair, the just way to organize human societies. But he approached it with a fairly structured, you know, quasi-scientific, formal method, um, minimax theory and so on. And so actually, I I actually thought I had invented the field of law and economics uh, because, oh, here's two things you should study together. You should study the theory of and how we structure societies and the the formal stuff about how do actual relationships work, prices and organizations and so on. So, So I actually, it was intellectually for me the very beginning, and then I went to Stanford to 
uh, do a joint PhD in economics together with a law degree. So I'd been kind of putting it together from those early days. I then discovered I had not invented the field. In fact, it was <laughs> an established field. Um, but I also discovered that they were asking questions I wasn't that interested in. You know, what's the efficient rule for contract breach or the right rules for corporate governance? And to be honest, where I am in my career right now uh, feels like I've come full circle because I'm finally saying, okay, I can use those more formal methods, modeling, computational methods, and so on, to think about those big questions about what's the right way? How do we build better human societies? How do we build better relationships? So it, it's been there from the beginning, really, sort of linking those two together. So I suppose we'll start off with a softball question. Uh, why did humans invent law? And I guess <laughs> since we're talking about this intersection of law and economics, maybe another way of putting that is, where does demand for laws come from? Why would we ever want to club together and come up with laws telling us what we're not allowed to do? Right, right. And and it's a softball question because it's a, part of the subtitle of my book. Um, yeah, so why did humans invent law? So, so let's take a step back. The, why did humans invent rules? Why do we have rules that say, this is the way you should talk to somebody, this is how you should share resources. You know, if I'm using a set of tools, you know, how should you treat the tools that I'm using and, and so on. And uh, those rules or norms, the way I look at it, humans invented those in order to give a basic infrastructure to our cooperation, a basic way for us to understand and work together. And that's really the, the, really the most important thing about what has made humans such a vastly more uh, productive and successful species than any other species on the planet. And of course, it requires cognition and language and all kinds of other distinctly human things. But fundamentally, it requires cooperation. So rules and norms are the fundamental infrastructure of cooperation. And cooperation is the secret of our success. Um, so why law? So the way I think about law is it's another, it's a step in the evolution of that kind of normative infrastructure that responds to the fact that as our societies grow, they become more complex. So here's the economics part. As societies grow, we get greater division of labor. We get greater specialization. You know, instead of we all go fishing and help build the fire and so on, right? You do the fishing, I build the fire. We become more specialized. Somebody actually starts being the one who says the blessings over the fire and somebody else says, well, let's build more permanent huts or we get greater specialization in the division of labor. And that makes the world more complex. You and I are less alike. And so it will be harder for me to predict what you think is the right way we should be doing something. Like if I'm sitting under the trees, I figure out a great way to make new types of bows for bow, you know, bows and arrows. And, and I train some apprentices, some young people to do that. And now I spend my days sitting under the tree, supervising my apprentices. Well, that might look like I'm lazy under our existing set of rules. But we might need a, a, to change our rules. We might actually need a new rule that says, no, the person sitting under the tree is actually doing something we now recognize as work. 
right? We don't see it in the same way, but it's new. As that becomes more complex and we start to need more rules and our rules need to adapt to situations they haven't seen before, we have ambiguity. So I think the fundamental thing that law is doing is helping us resolve the ambiguity by creating a structure that says, okay, we're going to create an institution. It might be this, de this elder or the shaman in the group, or it might be this count town council. It, it might be courts and Supreme Courts, right? We create that structure and we say, this institution, this person, this institution, they will be our ambiguity resolver. When we don't agree what is the rule, and we can't figure out what is the rule, they will announce a rule, they will, they will interpret our existing rules or announce a new one, and we will all recognize that every one of us is going to recognize that when Luca says sitting under the tree is okay, because actually we think it's productive and that's what we're all about, or the person sitting under the tree has contributed in the past and it's time for them to be able to enjoy that and adopt this, this supervisory role, uh, that we all know that we are going to say, okay, what Luca said. And I will then be able to predict in the future, uh, you know, whether I'm going to catch grief for sitting under the tree. And the apprentices will know that, it, oh, yeah, she's not going to disappear because, in fact, you know, nobody's going to come around and say, hey, what are you doing? Get, get back to work. That's, that's what I think law is about. I really like that explanation as well. And this like kind of emphasis on common knowledge, I think is the term for law. So not just that everybody knows what the rules are, but everybody knows that everybody knows what the rules are. And from there, right, you can build cooperation and you can build understanding. One thing I would love for you to maybe explain in a bit more detail is this idea of like how norms function in all of this and why these kind of informal things are really important too. In, in trying to sort of develop theory about this, which is what I've been doing for the last couple of decades, I guess, uh, because as I said at the top, sort of what's what's the big problem is we just don't have actually really good theory about this. Like we're the fish swimming in water. We are we are swimming in our normative environments, and we're so good at being part of them that it's very hard to get a an external perspective. So one of the first things that I've done, and this is uh, in work with Barry Weingast, who's a political scientist at Stanford, is we step back to say, okay, let's not even talk about rules. Let's talk about classification. This is a concept, of course, borrowed from computer science. And let's just talk about the fact that basically everything anybody does in the world is classified. You can do that. You can't do that. It's okay. It's not okay. It's going to cause get you grief. It's not going to get you grief from the people in your group. And this this classification, this normative classification, is is pervasive. I mean, it's governing everything from like how you and I are talking to each other right now, and how we all got dressed this morning, and and you know what we'll say when we talk to somebody later this afternoon. It's governing governing everything. It's just a classification that says what's okay and not okay. And humans throughout the long period of their history have always classified that behaviors. You can use this kind of bow, but you can't use that kind of bow. You can eat this kind of food, not that kind of food. Um, this is how you build a fire. That's not how you build a fire. And I use the language of norms for that informal classification 
it's emergent classification. There's often generally not any single person or entity that's saying, here's the classification. It's just that we've all interacted, maybe we've all made comments, and that has been an emergent property of our interaction, that we've landed on a classification. So the informal norms, I think you want to recognize that they predate law, they predate formal rulemaking, and they probably were all we had for <laughs> maybe a hundred or a thousand years or more. And they still continue to obviously occupy just a huge part of our normative infrastructure. So think about the pandemic, right? We've been evolving new norms throughout this process, Matt. I mean, there's there's been like informal norms about is it okay or not okay to wear a mask in this environment, you know, to stand this close to me in the grocery store, that close, right? A lot of that, you know, we've also developed some formal rules about that, but that the classification has been mostly this informal norms. Um, and I think this is like the thing I think people miss when they think about how we're going to build like machines that will be safe and, and in line with our norms. People focus on it like there's a relatively small number of norms they are kind of, and they're the big questions. And so like we focus on what our high courts and Supreme Courts are deciding big, big value questions. And I want to say, you walked outside of your house, or maybe you didn't this morning, you were just swimming in a sea of classifications of do it this way, don't do it that way. So it's, it's incredibly rich, but the informal norms are as critical to that normative infrastructure as the formal stuff. A common impression is that when we're talking about norms is that these things kind of maybe emerge organically or at least like bottom up, right? They're very decentralized. Whereas I think most people's impressions of laws is like very much like a top down thing, right? Like the government kind of imposing laws onto its citizens. And you also have a paper, right? That looks all the way back at ancient Athens. And I was wondering if you could maybe give like a brief overview of this and what kind of lessons you learned speaking to this question of decentralized versus like centralized control and rules. People do exactly as you say. They, they tend to say, what do we mean by law? Well, we mean governments that come down and write the rules and then enforce all the rules. And so we, we went out looking and say, well, you know, we have things that look like law, which is to say we have a mechanism for resolving ambiguity about what is acceptable or not acceptable, what's okay and not okay. But we can't, in, in lots of societies and points in history and places in time today, we don't see a centralized enforcement regime. So step number one was to step, separate this concept of classification from the enforcement of the classification. So that's, that's step one. So that's a theoretical move that says, what is a normative infrastructure or what we call a normative social order? It's a combination of a classification institution mechanism and an enforcement mechanism that tends to get people to choose, to please choose the things that are we've classified as okay or acceptable and don't choose to take the behaviors that we've said are not okay, not acceptable. So ancient Athens is uh, one of the really cool examples of this. It's of course famous often and studied in political science and so on as, you know, often seen as one of the first democracies. So the word democracy, you know, has its roots in, in ancient Greek. But what was really interesting about the Athenian society that emerged after 
you know, periods of time when it's the elites that are creating the rules um, and they create whatever rule they want and they could tell you, you know, it's this one versus that one. And, you know, they could change it whenever they wanted. They didn't have to announce it ahead of time. What Athens creates uh, in this sort of democratic period is they create formal centralized institutions for doing the classification job. So they have these massive assemblies, 6,000 person assemblies, more than that, to write some formal rules. And then they had they create the jury system, which again is a little different from what we think of as, as juries. These, these also could have up to 6,000 people uh, participating in the jury. Um, and the, the litigants, in order to get into court, would have to point to one of the written laws to say, okay, I want to, I want to sue Finn because he didn't pay up to, for this deal that we reached in the agora. He didn't, he didn't pay up. So we, so I want to bring him into court for that. And uh, there's no, for, there's no regular judge. There's no, um, and there might be all the citizens in Athens took turns playing formal roles. So they might serve as a year. So there might just be a logistical thing of who do I go say that to? Right. And, and how do we, I guess, get it, get the jury chosen? They have this really cool random process for choosing the jury that's representative across these different groups and locations and rural and so on. Um, and you get a decision. OK, uh, Finn, I'm sorry. The jury has decided you you haven't paid and you you owe me money. But all I get out of that process is that decision. There's nobody, there's no police for me to turn to, there's no bailiff, there's nobody, a sheriff I can ask to go and, and make you pay up. I have to get, kind of get my friends. I, you might voluntarily pay up, but if you don't, I have to get my friends and neighbors to come and help uh, get you to pay up. And um, that's a decentralized enforcement system. That's what we'll call a private enforcement system. The importance here of that common knowledge that we just spoke about a bit is that the class, everybody was at the jury. In fact, the Athenians invented common knowledge structures, you know, these curved spaces where everybody could see everybody else. Like, you, you know, you don't, you're not sitting and seeing people's backs of heads while the argument is happening. You can actually see everybody seeing it, and they can see that you're seeing it. So everybody knows that everybody knows that everybody knows that was the decision that was made in, in the court. So that's this combination of a centralized classification scheme that allows all of us to be confident of what's the, you know, is, is, does Finn owe Jillian money or not? But then a decentralized system for enforcing that which is a system we've been relying on, like I say, and, and we basically throughout almost all of human history until really the last few hundreds of years where we've had some centralized enforcement like police forces and, and uh, prisons and jails and, and so on. That's, that's to me the cool part about Athens. And I guess just to maybe summarize and um, draw out like some of the, the key lessons here is there seems to be like a really important dual role here that like laws and rules require. One is this classification thing. And as you mentioned, this kind of common knowledge of everybody knowing what is right and also knowing that everybody knows that. Um, and then the second thing being this enforcing thing so that if somebody then 
um, violates this classification thing or is on the wrong side of the, the rule, that then there is some form of punishment there. And in both cases, there have been some decentralized ways to do this. In Athens, um, you know, you could fit these 7,000 people in this room and you could maybe have like some sort of social stigma or something around, which we still see uh, maybe today with like mask wearing and things like that. But as you mentioned, as kind of time has progressed and societies have become more complex, there's been this increasing demand to have formal mechanisms doing this. So rather than just attending a, a big hall, you have these things written down in law. And rather than kind of relying on these social stigma things, you can actually have a police force or some other form of kind of state power um, to then actually uh, enforce these fines or something. Although even in that setting, right, think about that mask example, right? I think everybody's experienced over the last year just how important the enforcement by ordinary people is, right? Like if, you know, what, what drives you to sort of put that mask on or take it off is to some extent influenced by your prediction of what's the likelihood that a police officer is around who's going to find me uh, for this behavior. Most of us are thinking, okay, what, what's everybody on the street or in the store or my friend going to think? And, and it's, it's this thinking through, what will other people think? How will they understand my behavior? How will they respond to my behavior? That's that key th reason why you need a, classific a centralized classification scheme of some kind or a classification scheme of some kind is it's risky. Like you think about the person who's going to criticize you for not having your mask on. That's risky behavior. It's less risky for them if they can say, hey, you know, you don't have your mask on. You know, there's a mask mandate in, in place, right? But before we have a mask mandate, it's riskier to do that. And so they may be less likely, so it's less likely to be kind of an enforcement tool that we can use. Let's skip forward a few centuries and let's move over to the States. We have a situation now where to be a lawyer is a profession and there are licensing requires to be a lawyer in the same way that you need a license to become a doctor or something. Can you just tell the story of how law became increasingly complex and professionalized through the 19th and 20th centuries in the US? Yes. Uh, I mean, I've mostly studied the Anglo-American world. So it, this is happening sort of throughout, so certainly throughout the Anglo-American world, um, I think beyond that as well. So I just don't, I just want to say that's where I've done my, my, my research. But um, the story of that is, and it's related to the Industrial Revolution. So, right, we have, you know, 18th century, we have uh, significant changes in economic activity. And through the 19th century, increases in the scale of economic activity. So we go from a primarily agricultural society with small craft and artisans and, you know, markets, you know, exchange, literally, right, you know, bring your, bring your produce to market or bring your crafts to market. We have investment. We also have some banking and that kind of thing. But the Industrial Revolution, one of the things that happens there is we have this, all of a sudden we have a whole bunch of new types of activities and new types of relationships. And what that creates is uh, this demand for law. That creates this demand for, hey, the, what is a demand? A demand is just, I could do something more valuable if I had this, right? If I had an umbrella right now, I'd have a more valuable day if it's raining. I, I have a demand for law in the sense that I can enter into my transactions with lower risk. My partners 
can be more willing to take the risk of investing. If we've got confidence that we have a structure that if we don't, you know, when we say we're going to split the profits, that we'll have that investment. I feel more confident as an employee if I know that there are rules in place that say, you know, my employer is not allowed to lock the doors to the factory, that uh, I'm entitled to clean air in the in the workplace, and you can't have toxins in the factory. Uh, that creates a demand for law. It's a demand for rules that basically help us coordinate and say, yeah, I'm willing to participate. I mean, that to me, that's all that law is uh, in this normative sense is it's just this thing that says, okay, folks, I feel confident. You feel confident. Let's continue to move down this path and do this new activity and engage in this new thing and take these risks together because complexity and interdependence in an economic sense is tremendously risky. As soon as you get nervous about that, you retrench. You say, no, I'm going to cook, you know, grow my own food because I don't trust the food that others are, are growing. I'm not going to take that job where I'm, I'm exposing myself, making myself vulnerable to how my employer might teach me. I'm not going to get in the car that's driven by somebody I never met and hand over cash, right? I, you know, it, it's how we, ma how we manage all that is creates this demand. So the way I think about the uh, the emergence of laws, there's lots of law, I mean, law, lots of law in the 19th century floating around, but it's being produced in these very local places. The town council is producing it, right? It's this little, this village has its rules. This, right? We don't have very much that's right. And in the U.S., what starts to happen is, as the scale of economic activity grows, so you're building the railroads. Right, trade is is traveling much uh, longer distances. That creates a demand for I'm you know I'm in New York. I want to know what the rules in Ohio are. Right, if I'm engaging in transactions there. So one of the things we start to see is so at the start of the 19th century, uh, unlike uh, in uh, England and Canada, uh, in the U.S. at that time, anybody could practice law. There were no there were no law school requirements. There you didn't have to uh, study for three years. You didn't have to like you have to do now take the bar exam, uh, you know, big exam, and become a member of a, a bar association. You had to go to a court somewhere and get a judge to say, okay, yes, I'll admit you to the bar. But you know, famously, Abraham Lincoln um, never went to law school, and his advice to anybody who said. I want to be a lawyer was just, well, go read a lot and keep reading a lot and read a lot of law books. And then you'll find a judge who will admit you to the bar. Um, so one of the things that the legal lawyers in the 19th century in the U.S. start to do is to say, I mean, in a sense, I, I would say one thing they're, they're seeing is a demand for, you know, their better law, you know, law that's addressing really the commercial needs, right? Now, there is also a story that the lawyers who organized to start saying, hey, we need to professionalize. We need to start creating requirements of who can be a lawyer and who can't. We need to require law school. We need to require membership in our bar association uh, where we can discipline lawyers. A certain amount of that is elitism. It's anti-immigrant. It's racist. It's driven by, we don't want just anybody in our profession. Um, so there's, there's that thread there as well. 
but from a kind of fundamentals and economic, why does it take off? I think it, it actually works pretty well to create a structure of courts like what we would recognize today, a very standardized structure, uniform procedures, and much more sophisticated and, and, and careful, professionalized systems of producing law. So we, we get the requirement that you have to go to three years of law school, you've got to be a member of the Bar Association, and you have to follow the rules of the legal profession to do that. That sort of all gets solidified by the time we're into the uh, Depression, 1930s, and so on in the United States. Okay, and of course, all those changes still persist, right? So you still need to go to law school to become a lawyer, you still need to pass your bar exam, join an association. Like you said, that worked really well in the past, that was an improvement. But are these fairly strict requirements to become a lawyer still best? And what's a better way of doing things if they're not? Yeah, so I, I think they aren't still best. Um, I think they they have outlived their their function. And the critical thing here is that what what lawyers did, and this was very, very deliberate in the United States, it was ultimately organized through the American Bar Association, um, was to draw this line around who can practice law, right? And so that had the effect of saying, you know, we'll increase the quality and the training of, of who's practicing law. But especially under the pressure of the uh, Depression, uh, which was a time in the United States when actually so lots of changes happening um, through the beginning of the 19th century, 20th century. And we're starting to see all kinds of organizations provide legal services. So uh, the banks are saying to their banking customers, oh, come into the bank and we can also help you with your will or your um, uh, transactions. And the, the, Automobile associations are saying, you know, we can help you with, you know, in thinking about insurance and give you legal advice about uh, risks. And we're seeing all these corporations starting to provide legal services. So the, the key thing that the bar associations do at this time is they say, not only does somebody who's providing legal services need some training, like a law degree, they also have to operate only with other lawyers. Corporations can't provide any legal services. So the banks can't provide legal services and the co-op grocery store can't provide them and the automobile association, the union. Uh, they say it has to be lawyers operating in law firms, only working with other lawyers. And this is the point at which, you know, what's driving this is the commercial interest of lawyers. It's tied to the idea, well, you know, you have to be well-trained to be a lawyer and, you know, we need to exercise some discipline and control to make sure our courts have integrity, all of which continues to be true. But where we found ourselves today is that those rules roped us to this early 20th century model of how legal services are produced priced, who comes up with them, who designs them. And they cut law off from kind of the fundamental innovative kind of stuff that markets do 
when new people come in and say, I have an idea about a better way to do that. And they cut law off from the, uh, the structures that we use in other markets to support risk-taking, investment, finance. So if you can't form a corporation to provide legal services, you can't get investors, you can't access capital markets, you can't get venture capital, um, and you can't, you know, you can't say, hey, lawyer, join up with this computer scientist and this management expert and this psychologist because we figured out that would actually produce a better way of solving people's legal problems. And that's why I like to focus on this ground level theory about the demand for law, the demand for rule, normative, legal infrastructure. So I think where we've ended up is this regulatory structure for law and lawyers that we locked into place in the early 20th century is now critically interfering with our ability to build the kind of legal infrastructure we need for a world that is just transforming at incredible pace. Uh, I think it's just worth emphasizing that we're talking here about the US. And even just today, if you look at different countries, there are like some very different approaches here. And especially when it comes to this licensing thing, this just seems right, like at least from a kind of British or UK perspective, a really weird thing that to get any legal advice, you need to be a licensed lawyer. Uh, I don't know if you want to speak about that at all. Yes. So um, so actually, the, the rules are in some ways the harshest in uh, Canada and the US, where they do have this rule that says, any legal advice, help filling out a legal form, um, any legal advice, understanding your rights at work, all of that has to come from a licensed lawyer operating in a business model that's approved by um, uh, bar associations or ultimately Supreme Courts and law societies, uh, sometimes um, ministries of justice, but attorney generals, but not a lot of oversight there. Um, the UK is actually a little different. So England and Wales has always said, actually, anybody can give you legal advice. Anybody can give you uh, help with legal forms, documents, help you draft a contract, help you draft a will. They can't say they're a solicitor. They can't say they're a barrister. They have to be very clear with you that they no. I've been a union rep for 20 years. And that's why I think I know the rules. Um, there, there have been rules about how lawyers can operate in, in the UK, and those have, those started to change, um, gosh, about, I guess it's getting close to 15 years ago now. Um, and some of those rules are changing in, in the, U, the US and Canada quite slowly. Um, but the, the restriction on who can give you legal advice, who can help you understand this complex, I mean, you probably, well, you do, you all sign uh, legal agreements probably five times before breakfast if you <laughs> click on a little box that says, I agree, <laughs> right? It says, I have read and I agree. Of course, none of us read. We have no idea what we're agreeing to, but we just click that thing so we can get onto the page or get the app installed or, or whatever. So we live in these really what I call law-thick environments. Um, but the rules in a lot of places, uh, including the United States and Canada, are that the only people who can give you any help with that are licensed lawyers who are going to charge you a lot of money for that and really don't have a business model that can, that can help you there. 
Okay, so it sounds like a major problem with these licensing requirements in the US and Canada and elsewhere is that law just can't innovate fast enough to keep up with the pace of change in the world. Maybe that's that rate of change is nowhere faster than in tech and specifically with AI. You've written this paper with someone from OpenAI, Jack Clark, called Regulatory Markets for AI Safety. Um, we'll talk about this idea, but first of all, could you just, um, I suppose, explain what challenge AI poses uh, in particular for the more traditional kinds of, reg of regulation? And what are those traditional kinds of regulation uh, in the first place as well? So, so I like to I use this language of regulatory technology, which is what what is the means by which we take the decisions that have been made in our political institutions? What's fair? You know, what what, what do our workplace rule? You know, what are our workplace rules? What how safe does it have to be? How do cars have to drive? you know, how much risk, you know, what do people who want to sell you securities have to tell you, all that, that kind of normative choice making that happens in our political institutions. That has to some get, somehow get translated into a process that will actually get what you said you wanted to happen, have happen, actually happen on the ground, right? That you really learn these things before you sign a contract or your workplace is actually this safe, in fact. And I call that regulatory technology. And one of the consequences of this closure of the legal market, right, the way in which lawyers drew that line around it and said, everybody who participates in this market that produces legal goods and services has to be trained in the same way, can only have financing from other lawyers, um, has to operate in this particular business model, known as a, a law firm, a solo practice or a law firm. That, uh, that closed market um, had produced a regulatory technology, which, like we've said, worked really well through the 20th century. So more formal law, more structured lawmaking, regulations written in, in sort of standardized ways, litigation processes that everybody understood and were pretty constant and uniform across different settings. It, it worked pretty well, but it's not going to work well at all for the challenges of uh, uh, more complex technologies, globalized technologies. And if we're talking about AI and the rate at which, you know, AI, sort of the complexity of AI, the speed of it, the scale of it, um, that existing regulatory technology is kind of, to put it bluntly, write it down, get it passed by a, a legislature or a regulatory agency, have public officials monitor for whether there's violations or private entities that say, hey, they're violating the rules over there, and then file enforcement actions, either regulatory enforcement actions or lawsuits, and then make decisions and then impose penalties. That approach, and that's just very, very grossly speaking about the way our regulatory technology works, can't keep up with the complexity of uh, modern technology, especially AI, it won't keep up with the speed. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're actually, I think, in the domain of, of 
AI and then more broadly speaking, digital technologies, so social media platforms and, and so on, um, you know, we really just don't have an effective regulatory regime because nobody knows what laws we should pass. Nobody knows how to write them. And then even if we did, they'd be outdated immediately. Uh, the, they're probably not very well informed because most of our AI technologies are being built inside private corporations. And there they're protected by copyright laws and patent laws and trade secrecy and employment regulation. Um, so I think what, and you just won't be able to, you won't be able to keep up because it'll also be, you'll write something in there about today's technology. And of course, a year from now, it'll be a totally different technology or there'll be aspects of it that we don't understand. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so, so I think it's pretty clear that our existing regulatory technology is not fit for purpose and that we need to be thinking about how are we going to change the way we produce regulatory technology, not what new law should we pass, like should we allow people to publish this or not publish this online, you know, how are we going to get better content moderation, how are we going to make sure data is protected better, um, uh, you know, from privacy intrusions, et cetera. Um, most of our focus is still on how are we going to use our old tools. And I want us to be talking about how are we going to change the production process for those tools? Because we need new ones. And the only way I know of to generate new economic stuff, because I think regulatory technology is economic stuff, is to figure out how to attract investment and energy and money and brains to solving that problem. And you've got this um, great analogy here of this value of this outsider perspective coming in and uh, shaking things up in these completely new ways, right? It is this kind of new technology. And that's about kind of librarians and search engines. Do you want to uh, maybe explain that to listeners? Yeah, so so this is an analogy I drew uh you know, trying to drive home why it was that I love lawyers, you know, I, <laughs> I've educated thousands of them. Um, many of my best friends truly are, are lawyers. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that they can expect to be the ones who will come up with this new technology. And that's just because innovation doesn't happen in like closed bubbles where everybody has the same education and everybody processes problems in the same way and everybody speaks the same language, basically. Um, and so the analogy I draw is to uh, what happened with the problem of search on the internet sort of in the early, in the early days. And, um, you know, I've been around long enough uh, and was actually at Stanford in the uh, you know, in the 80s and 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 uh, part of the early 90s, sort of when, you know, the internet is just emerging. And what people are seeing is the problem of how are we going to, okay, we're connecting all these computers. How are people going to find stuff? Like, how are you going to know where to find the documents you're looking for? Like, which computer should you go look at? Whose computer should you try and access on through this, through the internet? And the first, everybody's expectation was that we would solve that problem the way we had solved the problem of how do I find information I'm looking for previously in print, which was with libraries and that kind of librarian's classification. 
you know, keywords and Dewey decimal systems and, you know, coding systems that says, okay, well, we'll put all the stuff in English about, you know, biology in this big group, and then we'll break it down. And a librarian was like your expert navigator, right? Go to the research desk. They will help you find the gem of an article or a book that you are looking for. And in fact, the, one of the first, uh, you know, obviously big portals on the internet, Yahoo, this is how they operated. They hired thousands of people to classify web pages, to go read the web pages and create classification systems for them. So you could say, I'm looking for help building model airplanes. And some human had looked at all the possible pages and put them in a little pile so you could go find them that way. And you have, you know, librarian research journals at this time talking about, okay, this is like our holy grail. How are we going to organize this massive information? Because of course, as you know, it's in volume, it's growing in leaps and bounds uh, year by year. And of course, what we know is the way that problem was solved was, had nothing to do with classification and librarian technologies and uh, loads of human readers putting labels on things. It was solved, you know, Sergey Brin and Larry Page saying, oh, we, we're computer scientists. Uh, we're not librarians, and, but, but we have an idea. What if we looked at the pages that were linked on each of these pages and we looked at how much people clicked on those links and now we'll just use our software to keep track of those links and we'll come up with a ranking that will say, well, most people who put this word into the search bar, you know, they clicked on this. And they, it, and, and they clicked to a page that a whole bunch of other people clicked to access as well. And so you had this ranking system based on that click, you know, the popularity of the clicks. So, you know, up until that idea comes out, nobody is thinking that that's how you solve the problem of finding stuff on the internet. Now we can't think how you could do it differently. And we know all the problems we now face with it as well. So I always say, look, if the librarians had been organized and regulated the way that lawyers organize and regulated, they wouldn't have allowed Larry Page and Sergey Brin onto their turf. They would have said, sorry, you can't participate in the market for search results. You can't provide a service, sell a service for finding stuff on the internet because that's what we do. And you need a librarian's license and training to be able to do that. And sort of, you know, draw that analogy to say, but we really do want to make sure that we're letting people who have never thought about your problem before, like how do you solve a regulatory problem, who haven't taken my class in contracts or, you know, my colleagues' classes in antitrust or whatever, we want people who are thinking about this from totally different directions to have the capacity to come in and say, I've got an idea. What if we did it this way? And that's sort of that that nub of of innovative spark that we desperately need in uh, the production of regulatory technology. We still need to regulate to make sure they're not selling snake oil. I mean, now we know we actually need to be figuring out how to regulate the search engine process because, you know, maybe in the back now the algorithms are being manipulated so that the ranking is putting too much weight on you know, Google's own products or paper, pages or something. But um, it, it's still how we have to get there. We have to get there with more innovation.
and just kind of, I guess, thinking this analogy through, there might be one dissimilarity when we just think about how well-funded uh, librarians versus law firms are. And just kind of from a political economy perspective, this might just be a completely different challenge, right, in order to, to get this breakthrough and to get these, uh, these new technologies, as you said. Yes, yes. It's, um, it, it's been a challenge I've been thinking about for 20 years yeah, because they invented a perfect system, particularly in the U in the U.S., a really perfect system that it was like, okay, well, it'll only be us. And in fact, well, it's going to grow so complicated, nobody outside of the system can understand it, and everybody will fall down dead in front of lawyers. And then we will have these organizations that put up their hand and say, we're acting in the public interest, but are clearly protecting lawyers' interests as well and, and slowing down, slowing down change. Um, so I do think it's a much harder problem. In fact, the librarians were not organized in that way. And, uh, you know, Google could, you know, come in and, and uh, totally upend that market. Before we talk about AI specifically, there is this idea of a way of coming up with regulation, which involves some of these kind of market forces, which is just the idea of a regulatory market. Could you just explain how they work in general? Sure. Uh, this is joint work with Jack Clark, who uh, uh, I'm a senior policy advisor at OpenAI. He was formerly policy director at OpenAI. He's now got a new company, Anthropic. Um, so, so the concept of regulatory markets, which I talk about in the book uh, as uh, sort of initially sort of setting out the ideas. So the, the thought here is to say one of the things we, we want to separate out is what I would call the normative question of what regulate, what kind of outcomes do we want? How safe do we want our cars and workplaces to be? How much risk do we want people who are buying legal services to face that they will get bad advice or wrong advice or corrupted advice? Uh, so that's our, our, what do we want our outcomes to be? And then, as I said, there's this regulatory technology question. Okay, now how are we going to take, how are we going to translate that normative or political decision into actual changes in behavior on the ground. Like, what do we have to put into our processes? And as I was mentioning, the our old-fashioned method of doing that is we write down on a you know piece of paper or now an electronic document legislation and statu statutes and regulations and so on, and that's our technology. But as we look at a much faster-moving, complex, globalized world, I think we're also going to need just good, just actual technology. Like the best way to make sure that self-driving cars are safe might not be only to write down a set of rules about, you know, here's how they need to be built and so on, but also to have some technology maybe that's constantly monitoring the data that's being generated by the cars or the models that are being supplied down to the cars. Um, and that kind of Technology is only going to be produced in a market, I think. Um, I mean, there could be public investment in it as well, but I think it needs to be built on a, a system that attracts private investment. I want the people who are building this, the, some of the engineers who are building the self-driving cars to have an incentive to spin out of and, you know, to find each other and say, let's build, and I have a better idea about how we could regulate these things and make sure that they, for example, reflect local community values when they decide the risks between going around, you know, how much room should you give to a bicyclist? Um, how much, you know, what risk should there be that we don't recognize a bicycle crossing the street in the middle of the road? 
um, with paper bags or plastic grocery bags hanging from the handlebars, which is sort of one of the stories of, uh, I think it was one of the Uber crashes. Um, you know, you, you want to be able to create those companies. You want all that energy of like the startup culture and let's build this new thing in there. So that's a market. So the concept of regulatory markets is to say, okay, so we want to create those kind of companies. Let's, let's call them private regulators because the product they are producing is regulatory services. They are making sure that the car is safe, making sure that the car is following the rules, your self-driving car, whatever, or content moderation. It's making sure that uh, the actual content that's showing up on a social media platform uh, is compliant with the values of some relevant local uh, community. Uh, political community. So, so they're providing regulatory services. I'm going to call them private regulators. And they could be profit companies. I think that has to attract some of it. So it could be nonprofits. It could be other organizations, but they're, they're private uh, companies. And the concept of a regulatory market is, okay, we don't want anybody in the market providing these services unless we've had government oversight to make sure that they're in fact focused on achieving the outcomes that have been set in our political sector. So it's, if I'm a private regulator, I'm not deciding what are the values that should be reflected in online content on a social media platform, right? The, you know, the legislature or some town council is deciding that, some political group. Um, but I'm being regulated by the government, by an oversight body, to make sure that the technology I produced is doing what the government wants it to do or that oversight body wants it to do. And then say to like the social media platforms, what I call sort of like the targets of regulation, okay, you have to buy regulatory services uh, and you have to buy them from an approved regulator. So it's a bit like saying, you know, if you're going to be a public corporation and you need your accounts verified by a licensed, uh, you know, certified public accountant, um, it's like saying you must you must have your uh, your financial statements certified, and they must be certified by a licensed uh, certified uh, pu public accountant. So this is like you got to buy regulatory services, you got to buy them from an approved private regulator. So the sense in which this is a regulatory market is it's competition between the providers of regulatory services to solve the following optimization problem. Subject to the constraint that I maintain my approval by government, how can I grow my market share? Well, how can I grow my market share by being a more uh, attractive regulator, provider of regulators, regulatory services? And so that gives me an incentive. If, you know, let's suppose private regulator A comes in and says, well, I'll just do what we've been doing. I'll write a bunch of rules down and I'll hire investigators and then I'll penalize violators of the rules. But then, you know, some smart engineers and business people from, you know, a company producing self-driving cars say, spins out and says, we could build a machine learning model to help us here. Right. Let's get all of our customers to share data with us and allow us to monitor and maybe even intervene directly on how the parameters are being tuned or something. 
that's a, that may be a more efficient technology. So now, you know, the self-driving car company as the target that has to buy these services has a choice in the market. Do you want to be regulated by the, the company that does this with a lot of written rules? Or do you want to be regulated by the company that says, well, share your data with us. And actually, this is going to be a really transparent process for you. Uh, that's how we create incentives to build that. That's like, okay, you can go to the librarian to help you find stuff, or you can go to Google to help you find stuff. And we know how that competition works out. Admittedly, again, that we got lots of needs for regulation that are arising in that space. Like, it's, this, is, this is a conversation that has changed a lot um, over the last 15 years. But um, that's the concept of a regulatory market. So maybe just to summarize what you said there, uh, in this regulatory market model, we have these three parties. We've got these private regulators, uh, then we've got the companies, and then we've got the government. And the government kind of just sets out these goals, uh, which private regulators need to kind of hit in order to be awarded these licenses, in order to be allowed to operate. And then these private regulators can then kind of set out whatever regulation they want in order to achieve these predefined goals which then will attract hopefully companies to subscribe to these regulatory models and then that's how this kind of works and there's clearly some upside here that this can cause a, a big incentive for innovation it can bring in a lot new talent bring in a lot more money to try and experiment with these things and i guess also just makes the job for the government a bit easier where it can just focus on outcomes and objectives rather than getting tied down on the specifics of like machine learning or artificial intelligence and then on the other hand um i guess it's also just more transparent right for um the public um rather than like using jargon or words politicians are kind of held a bit more accountable and actually having to specify what social outcomes they want and then voters being allowed to on this so this all sounds really great um but i can also imagine that this sounds weird and possibly worrying to some listeners in particular whenever you use the words competition together with regulation there's kind of a couple of alarm bells going off and we saw for example in 2008 with these credit rating agencies that they can also be this kind of race to the bottom right where regulators um, or these kind of private um, credit rating agencies really let things slip through or start colluding um, can you speak to that and maybe how your um, private regulatory market system would want to avoid these outcomes or more generally how to think about this um, relationship between companies and, and regulators? It's really important to, you know, not be panglossian about any of our systems. Um, so, so I've been studying uh, institutional design basically throughout my career. And one of the key points that you make in the study of institutional design is that you're doing comparative institutional design. And the, the fundamental problems, you know, it's like hydraulics, right? You know, it's, it, the fundamental problems don't go away. People are greedy. People will cheat. People will, to make profit, companies will, you know, skate close to every line they can skate close to. They will, you know, they will rig the systems so that you can't, that the car will figure out that it's being tested for emissions and will change its emissions, right? So if we think about the Volkswagen scandal, you know, as an economist, right, that's what you study. You study the incentive to maximize within whatever constraints you're being is being imposed. So it's absolutely right to think about how will private regulators do that? They're going to be self-interested. They're going to be profit maximizing. They're going to try and do whatever they can do. So 
what that says is that you need to design the design the regulation of the regulators to do your best to get that market to work well. Well, that's exactly the same problem we currently have now. It's just that what we're trying to do is say, let's let governments design the regulatory schemes that will keep our powerful companies in line. And I'm saying they're bringing, you know, that, you know, they're, they're bringing a water pistol to a gunfight, right? They're just not going to be able to do that. And we need some more powerful tools and technology there. But we absolutely have to think about what's the regulatory design that gets our private regulators to do what we want them to do. So that's not an easy problem. I, I Part of what, what I'm calling for is to say, we need to start working on how do we design the regulation of regulators? How do we design that oversight mechanism? What metrics can we use? Where can it work? I'm not saying this is going to work everywhere, but we need to start experimenting and building that out and, and, and discovering how that, how that can work better. So you need to have regulatory bite, regulatory teeth in regulating your regulators. I do think that has some attractive features. It's like, okay, uh, we're going to measure accident rates. We're going to audit content on the systems that you regulate, private regulator, and we're going to we're going to say, look, we've set a we we've set a, a maximum uh, percentage of inappropriate content or harmful content. You know, we we'll say, okay, so if you're not meeting that, then then we're either going to take away your license or we're going to require you to correct it within a period of time. Um, it might be principles-based. It doesn't necessarily have to be metrics-based. This is the way actually that the regulation of lawyers in the UK operates now. UK Parliament has said, here are the principles and the goals for regulation of lawyers. And our independent regulator is uh, going to decide who is allowed to regulate legal services and we will keep reviewing the results of those regulators to see whether or not that's what's happening. Not saying it's working great, but it's a problem we can continue. It's like, instead of continuing to solve the problem of like, what should we put in the legislation to tell social media platforms what they can and can't have online, let's put our efforts into figuring out how can we effectively regulate a private regulatory, uh, private regulator. So point number one there is, these are, are, are real risks, and we have to design systems around them. We have to design to, to respond to that. Uh, the whole thing doesn't work unless you have effective regulation with bite of the private regulators. That's a critical feature. But here's what I also want to say. This is the comparative institutional point. We currently have very little, almost no regulation happening throughout this sector. Or put another way, any regulation we have is being chosen and implemented by the companies producing the services themselves, my, what I'm calling the target, right? The Facebooks and uh, the social media platforms, uh, the Googles, the Apples, the self-driving car companies, they are regulating themselves. We have a massive default to self-regulation by corporate profit-making entities happening right now. And we are not going to be successful in saying, oh, let's just pass a lot of law to correct that problem 
right? Let's have that direct regulatory relationship using our old regulatory tools. Let's ask the lawyers to do it for us. Just want to say it is not going to work. So all the risks you identify are absolutely real risks in the model that I'm proposing. It's a, it's a conceptual model that I'm proposing. We need to do lots of design work. We need lots of smart economists and politicians and technologists and political scientists and psychologists. We need a whole bunch of work done to design this system and, and figure out. And I would say, let's do it the way we do everything else. Start small, test it out, pivot, uh, minimum viable product, um, you know, follow those kinds of procedures to build it out. But I just want to get the focus shifting because I really, really worry about the fact that we actually, anybody who says this to me, like, oh my gosh, you want to put private corporations in charge? I'll say, private corporations are in charge right now. I would like independent private corporations with different incentives to be playing a bigger role here. And I'd like to start taking seriously and redesigning our regulatory oversight problem to be one we can actually solve. I just had a quick question here. We're talking about regulatory markets in the context of AI, you mentioned self-driving cars, but I was just wondering if you could throw out some more examples uh, or more issues where potentially this kind of agile regulation is going to be really important. Oh, so I, I think the ones that I start off with are the ones where it's very clear we actually need technology, technology <laughs> to, to help solve the problem because of the speed and scale. So uh, let's think about uh, uh, automated decision-making and the risks of bias. Uh, and, and even just a very simple version of that, um, you know, where, where the type of bias we're talking about is arising from uh, lack of representative data in the training of our models. Um, now, it, if you have a kind of naive view about how machine learning models are built, you'd say, oh, they have a data set, they build a model, we'll just go check the data set. So turn over the data set to um, you know, our, our investigators and they'll check it for uh, representativeness. Well, of course, the real world of building models is you're iterating constantly, the data set is changing, you know, maybe you're actually training on real time feedback and use of a model, like, you know, with how people are responding on their devices and so on. So I think we're very clearly going to need probably machine learning based models that will be out there evaluating the representativeness or the bias in uh, our automated decision making models. So that's as hard an innovation problem as building the automated decision-making system that can say, who should I give a, a loan to or who should I hire for this job? So I just really would like to get some of our brilliant technologists and business people and entrepreneurs thinking about, oh, let me build the models. Then we do actually have companies starting to emerge like that. Um, so that's an example where I'd say, okay, so now uh, let me, as government, regulate the company that's saying we have a bit of software that can validate and check for bias in models you government will tell you know government should be telling that company what kind of bias should you be looking for which demographic groups do we want to make sure are represented right what what are we looking for oh and, and by the way if you discover biases we hadn't thought of please tell us about them so we could also 
add that in. Um, but I think that's an exa example. Uh, we've mentioned content moderation. Um, so this is something, for example, I, I met recently with a, a, some, you know, uh, government officials who are contemplating drafting legislation to deal with the problem of online harms. So people saying, you know, violent things online or inciting, inciting violence or, you know, revenge pornography or, you know, stuff that's harmful to children, polarization. But they're using the existing technology to do this. They're saying, okay, let's write a law that says, thou shalt not have the following kinds of things on your social media platform. And let's give a right to people who are harmed by that to sue, and then we'll have a court or a tribunal make a judgment, and then we'll write into the law. This is kind of an amazing thing. You have a right to have that information removed within 24 hours. Like this is just completely disconnected from the real world as far as I can tell. But we know we can start to develop technologies that can manage the volume and perhaps find creative and new ways to make sure that the stuff that's showing up in your newsfeed or on your social media is aligned with values. Maybe there's ways to allow you to select your own metrics for how you want to do that, right? And so actually, um, uh, my, my son, Dylan Hadfield Manel, is uh, a new new professor at MIT, but he's 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 got a start a company that's starting to to think about how do we do this? How do we how do we create the metrics? How do we are there techniques and tools we can use as a technology solution to better align the content in a newsfeed or or online? And um, so I think those so I think the technology areas are ones. I think places where we I, I would certainly pick as places to start, uh, places where you have some, you can actually have some kind of a, a metric you could you could measure. Uh, th those would be ones I think. Um, uh, pr privacy is another one, um, right? Like right now we have a very very complicated rules about de-identification and and so on. And saying why aren't we auditing? And why don't we have a little, why don't we have a watermark on data that allows us to audit for when data has gone to some place it wasn't allowed to go, right? I mean, that's how, that's how the diamond traders actually have, you know, they, they, you know, now use laser tags, very, you know, invisible, but tags to, to say, oh yeah, that, that, that diamond wasn't supposed to be there. It was supposed to be over here. Um, so I think uh, if that's what you were asking about, sort of like, you know, what are the possibilities here? Um, the one last question I had on this topic and asking about how this might work in practice that I think kind of relates to the very first bit of our discussion here is about like what law and stuff actually is, is maybe um, a worry in two parts. And that is that once you have um, a lot of regulators, you will just get lots of different types of regulations and different companies following different types of regulations. And that creates some complexity in itself. And we talked um, right at the beginning of our interview about this importance of having common knowledge. So not just people knowing what the rules are, but everybody knowing that everybody knows what the rules are. But there's maybe a worry here that like, could this not end in a place where people are really confused, right? Because if they want to trade with company X, they also need to know what regulations or what rules company X follows. And that might be completely different to all their different trading partners. And that can create some sort of barriers or complexity. Um, and then I guess 
a similar but somewhat distinct worry here as well is, is that if regulators keep innovating um, and keep changing the rules that they're offering in order to attract companies, that creates a lot of like uncertainty as well. Like government uh, might not have the best regulation, but one thing that it does do is it's very slow to change, which is a drawback, but also just gives some certainty um, in kind of being able to plan investments five, 10 years ahead. Whereas if we're constantly seeing these new technologies evolve and constantly seeing new innovation, then that can be really difficult. And that can mean that companies will like hold out from investing in things because they're not sure what the rules are and that private regulators may just um, suddenly change. I know that these are like, again, big kind of open questions, but I would love to, to see your take on these two, these two issues. Great question. So this is why I, I took us, you know, to take us back at the beginning to just that really, really fundamental question, as you say, of what is the function of law? What's the purpose of law? Why did we, why did humans invent law? And they invented it in order to support their cooperation. They invented it in order to allow complex interdependent relationships to morph and change and thrive and gain investment and, and, and participation. So now if you think about that function and you say, okay, and the way we solve that problem for millennia has been we have a set of rules and we write them down or we have a law speaker who is the guardian of them who will tell us what the rules are. And largely because we've had that decentralized enforcement system, again, throughout most of human history, the way we've coordinated on do I think these rules will be followed has been by common knowledge of the rules. This is also why I say it's really critical not to define law as a set of rules. It's a way of getting to classification and the confidence you want is confidence that the outcomes are likely to occur, that the outcomes that you've, you've chosen through your process the food will be safe to eat, the car will be safe to drive, the workplace will be safe, the, the social media platform will not expose you or your, your citizens or your children to harmful content. The confidence you need is in the confidence in achieving that outcome. So if we have this regulatory market and we have, let's say there's, let's say globally, there's 10 different providers of regulatory services for content, but let's suppose they're all held to the same oversight standard of what they're supposed to achieve. Like, you know, there can't be more than 5% content that the community would say that shouldn't be there getting through because you can't get perfection, right? We, we, we know you can't get perfection. Um, the confidence you need is that those outcomes are being achieved, but you might have, like I say, you've got 10 different, they might be following very, if very different ways of achieving that outcome. Some might be following this rules-based approach. Some might be using technology. Some might be building machine learning models. So I don't know what comes next. That's why you need a market. You need some innovation because I don't know what the right answer is for the best way to achieve that. But I don't need common knowledge. We don't need common knowledge of the nitty gritty of the rules. We need common knowledge that it's a stable, effective system in place that when I, I go in and I interact online, I get on into the car, into the car on the highway, I go into the workplace, I need confidence that I have there are stable infrastructure here that is aligning 
the behavior of companies with our collective choices about what we think is fair and right and safe. Um, and that's actually, so, so that's why you need to go back to the theory part and say, don't, don't equate, don't mistake the means for the ends. Don't mistake the way we've accomplished these objectives in the past for uh, that's what we need to do, right? That what we need is common knowledge of the rules. Believe me, most of us have no idea what the rules are. I guarantee no, none of us are reading those things that we're clicking I read and agree every day, right? We don't really know what that is. So we're actually in a very, very bad state there. And what we don't have is good confidence that there aren't sneaky things in there that, that uh, we don't approve of in a collective sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's switch topic for the last few minutes. We've been talking about AI, but let's just jump back to talking about rules, short of laws. You're part of this um, quite original and fun paper talking about something called silly rules. Natural first question is just to explain what silly rules are. So we've defined silly rules. This is uh, joint work with uh, Joel Leibo and Raphael Custer at DeepMind, uh, a couple of other team members at DeepMind, and, and uh, also uh, Dylan hadfield Uh So silly rules, uh, we've defined these. Uh, we've taken the world of rules and said so there's two kinds of rules. There are ones that have an actual direct impact on welfare, uh, so those are things like don't steal my stuff, pay up what you promised to pay me, you know, make sure that there's not toxins in my drinking water. Important rules, direct impact and welfare. If that rule's not followed, people are not as well off or societies are not as well off. And then we've said, okay, we're going to define a silly rule as a rule that has no direct impact on welfare, right? Wear a dress that you know, comes to your knees or wear a dress that comes to your ankles. So a silly rule is uh, uh, one that, that if that rule was broken, like the materially nothing would change. Like, you know, wear this kind of clothing, that kind of clothing, eat this kind of food, not that kind of food, even if there's no health impact of the food, right? It's just, we don't eat dog. Some places they don't eat cows. Other places they don't eat snakes, right? You know, it's, just a, it's a silly rule in the sense that it has no direct impact on welfare. And one of the things we're doing just initially with this definition, and this is original work uh, with uh, Dylan and um, McCain Andrus, uh, is to say the world is full of silly rules. If you just look out there at our normative landscape, there's a ton of rules that we follow and care about that really nothing would be different materially if we didn't have that rule. So I guess then the big question is, why do we have all of these silly rules uh, in the world, right? If they're not actually achieving anything for welfare. And you had this really interesting kind of unique methodology in trying to explore this question where you had this foraging game, right, of, uh, of these different agents. Can you actually just explain what this kind of, I guess, almost experiment was that, that you ran? Right. So, so we actually... Um, uh, uh, built or made use of a, a reinforcement learning system uh, at DeepMind um, uh, in which we had, uh, we created these artificial agents, which are just neural nets that are 
optimizing and our agents are uh it's a, so it's a multi-agent setting uh our our agents are playing uh a, a foreignji game just a, in a grid world uh, you know 2d uh space in virtual space and the grid world is uh populated by all different kinds of berries they're just different colored bits on the squares the agents get reward if they figure out how to navigate to a square with a berry to consume it. So that's a foraging, you could say it's a foraging game. There's actually, there's no competition over resources. There's lots and lots of berries. So in a sense, they don't need to cooperate at all on the, the eating part of things. They just need to, so these are, uh, so it's reinforcement learning. So the agents don't come in with, you know, uh, any anything other than this reward function. You'll get points if you find your way to a square. So it's just the same as when we build reinforcement learning systems to play Atari games or whatever and you know gain score, gain gain reward. But in this environment, we introduced one of these um, uh, berries is poisonous. So uh, if you eat the pink berry, you, suffer a health consequence, uh, which uh, just means that future berries that you eat produce less reward for you. But there's a long delay between when you eat the berry, the pink berry, and when, you, when that health effect kicks in. So it's 100 time steps until that health effect kicks in. So what we what we wanted to look at was what was the, the impact of introducing normative infrastructure into this environment. The first time we, we ran this game, just like I described it, and the agents can't figure out the, how to, that the poisonous berry is poisonous. They never learn to avoid the poisonous berry. And the reason is because of a credit assignment problem. There's just too long a delay between the eating of the poisonous berry and the negative effect you know, so many other things have happened. Once they get sick, they can't go back. They can't figure out what in the last hundred steps or whatever that I did caused the illness, uh, the reduced the reduced reward. So wh when you run the game like that, the agents eat the poisonous berry and they never learn to avoid it. They can't solve that credit assignment problem in this reinforcement learning setting. So we then we looked at what's the impact of introducing normative infrastructure. Uh, this team from DeepMind has got a number of really nice papers which introduces um, the capacity for agents to punish each other. So that's that decentralized enforcement. They have a punishing beam. They can fire a punishing beam at another player, and that imposes, it's costly. It costs the agent points to use the punishing beam, and it, it causes even more damage to the um, to the agent that's hit with this punishing beam. And they've done some nice papers on the tragedy of the commons and the use of this punishing beam to, um, to see whether or not the agents will figure out how to solve the tragedy of the commons problem. We don't have a tragedy of the commons problem uh, in, in our setup. Um, so we gave our agents this punishing beam, and then we introduce a classification scheme, which is implemented that says, Let's suppose there's a taboo on the poisonous berry. So if you think about what does that mean? Well, that means that agents effectively will be rewarded for punishing an agent who's eaten the, the taboo berry. And that's like, okay, if you eat dog, 
like maybe people will criticize you or they won't invite you to their parties anymore or they won't hire you because they, they you've, you've violated the rule. And, uh, and that's an important rule because actually if the agents punish people for eating the, the poisonous berry, maybe they'll get better at avoiding the poisonous berry, not because they'll figure out it makes them ill 100 steps later, but because, oh my gosh, people are getting rewarded for punishing me after I eat the poisonous berry because it shows up as a marking of that agent. I eat the poisonous berry. I change color from the perspective of other agents and uh, you get that. They get rewarded. We don't really know. We don't have good theories yet for why people, in fact, punish third-party punishment. That's a key thing about humans. Um, uh, so this is an implementation of, well, what we know is that humans do go around punishing people all the time, criticizing, mocking, excluding people who violate the rules. We need to work on why that happens, but in this model, it's implemented in that way. Um, so now that you've kind of laid out this... Um this uh, foraging game. Can you explain how silly rules uh, fit into this and what the, the findings were that you found? So in, in the final treatment in our experiments, this is a computational experiment, we're running, to, you know, uh, I think we have about, oh, we have 45 populations of groups that are running through this game in different conditions. So we introduce what we call the silly rule condition, which is where we, we have a taboo on a random harmless berry. So we, the, the, the community has the, tab, the important rule, don't eat the pink berries. And then we say, and don't eat the green ones. The green ones are actually harmless. They don't do anything to your health. And uh, we introduce a silly rule. And then we look at and we compare across these different communities, you know, what, no rules, which, as I said, they never learn to avoid the poisonous berry. The important rule condition, which we find they do learn to avoid the poisonous berry because it's taboo and they get punished. Critically, agents learn to punish people who've broken the taboo. They learn that there's a reward there and they learn that behavior. When we introduce the silly rule, we find that our agents learn to enforce the rules faster and more reliably. And then everybody learns to follow the rules sooner and more reliably. So what that means is that because we've introduced the silly rule, it's it's improved the capacity to have this normative infrastructure. And then that normative infrastructure, which is, consists of enforcement behaviors, you know, punish somebody who breaks the rules, and compliance behaviors, don't do the things that get you punished. If that set of behaviors has stabilized, now you can say, okay, <laughs> don't eat the poisonous berry. And so what we find is there's actually higher total welfare for this group because they get so much they they get so much better at enforcing and following rules that now that infrastructure is sitting there and it can take the values you put into it. So if you want to put the value in don't eat poisonous berries, uh, then that's uh, a value you can get that value better. So this sort of gets this moves your focus away from what norms should we have. And how will societies develop norms, particular norms, blue, pink berries, green berries, and gets you focused on how are you going to build the normative infrastructure, which is now this fantastic thing, because maybe you discovered that the yellow berries also cause problems, or maybe the yellow berries are rare and they're especially great, and we now do have 
a competition problem and a tragedy of the commons, right? We'd be, so can we get a rule that says, don't eat more than one yellow berry a, an episode, right? We haven't run that experiment. That's the next one, sort of the series of things we'd like to, to get to. But, but so, the, so the result with the silly rule is we see fewer poisonous berries eaten, we see less time spent poison, we see higher overall, we see less punishment overall, even though there's twice as many taboos to be broken. So you, you kind of get this, you get more stable, faster stable social order with the silly rule. So that's our result. Does this just mean that like having more silly rules is always better? Or how should we think about collective returns? Uh, I think what we would say is, we, we've, we've shown that there's a benefit to having silly rules and that they may be playing a very important function, not in their direct material impact, but rather in their role in helping to create and maintain and sustain a normative infrastructure. Uh, in the earlier paper I mentioned with McCain Andrus and Dylan hadfield Bennell, uh, we we did show that the silly rules can't be too expensive. They have to be kind of cheap, which is also why it's like, you know, wear a red ribbon, you know, wear your hat with the brim to the left rather than to the right. I mean, it's that they're kind of cheap, relatively low cost to enforce and comply with. So because we ran computations and it's a different setup, but we ran computations that said if, if they're too expensive, then no, it's not worth it. Um, so that's that. So it, it won't it, it's not a result that says you know, just because one is a good idea, any number at any cost would be a good idea. So that's not the way an economist would think about it. But I think what it, it does say is we've drawn attention to the importance of what are your mechanisms for maintaining, establishing and maintaining normative social order. So suppose you're trying to create norms in a new community. We'd probably all sit around and say, okay, let's just pick important rules. And this kind of says, you know what? You may want to throw in some silly rules there. Like, here's how we greet each other when we walk into the room. Here are the foods we do or don't eat when we sit down for a meal together. You know, here, here's, here's the way we keep the minutes for, for our meetings. You know, we, we, you, you, we do them in this color font versus that color font. Because... One of the things that silly rules are doing, so we just showed that they, they help people uh, learn to enforce and follow rules. In our earlier paper, we also said they help provide information about how stable your rule system is. And lots of rule systems are under threat kind of in a constant way. New, we've got new employees. We've got new people who've joined the group. Do they follow the rules? Are they going to be helpful in enforcing the rules? If they stop you know, saying the greeting when we walk into our, our meeting room in this way. Like, who are those weird people? Because what the silly rules are giving you information about is the stability of the system. And that actually goes back to this point about, like, what is it we want common knowledge about? What do we want confidence in? We want confidence in, okay, they got rules around here. I think I can figure them out. And I have some confidence the rules are actually working that they're actually being followed. I don't just see that on the books they've said, don't steal people's property. I can see that people in this neighborhood watch out and help make sure that nobody's stealing the property. And I think one of the things that we're pointing to, and I think there's lots of room for, for more work on this, 
is I think we've probably got a ton of cognitive architecture that's dedicated to tracking what's happening with those silly rules because the value of them is they're all over the place. It doesn't really matter if they don't get followed, as I say, from a direct material point of view, but they're giving you lots of information and they're telling you stuff right now that might matter for something in the future, right? Like, I don't want to stay a member of this, um, say, a, a, say, say you're a member of a, a small religious community and, you know, has lots of rules about who you marry and how children will be cared for and how sick people will be treated and so on. Well, you're going to make a lot of commitments, right? If you say, I'm going to stay within this small community because you're not going to date other people or you're not going to take out health insurance or get a job in another community or whatever. But if that community is starting to fall apart, if it's getting, is saying it's just too hard to maintain our small religious community, your first clues about that will be when people start eating what they weren't supposed to eat or not showing up for prayers at the right time, right? That will, that will give you that indication of, gosh, I better think about whether or not this is too risky a proposition for me because the important rules like about family and work and so on may not be enforced. And I think that's constant. It's an interesting link, right, to like kind of small C conservatism, um, right? And I guess like worrying about these small rules or kind of like identity things as well, right? Being wary of kind of change. First of all, I think it's across the board politically. I mean, lots of radical lefties have lots and lots of silly rules too. Like what word you use, don't use this word, use that word, dress like this. Um, there's lots of silly rules everywhere. I, I don't think you can identify a group that doesn't have silly rules. But what it might tell you is how worried is a group about the stability of the norms that it cares about. And a small C conservative um, may be saying, okay, I, I live in a, I, 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 I feel greater threat about whether or not my values are going to be reflected, whether or not the things that matter to me are going to be protected. And this theory actually predicts that you would see a lot of attention to the silly rules there. Because like, why do I think we've got cognitive architecture that makes us so reactive to like, don't, don't you feel terrible if, if somebody like gives you a dirty look in the, the cafe because they think you cut in line or something? Like, I don't know, maybe I'm just an obsessive type, but it can, it can ruin my day if somebody thinks I did something wrong like that. And uh, I think we have lots of cognitive architecture that has structured us to be very alert to those indicators because they are telling us something important. They are telling us something important about, um, you know, oh, in this environment, this is how you signal that you're a member of the community. In... Um, hunter-gatherer groups, the, the primary mechanisms of enforcing the norms are, are making fun of people, mockery, criticism, right? But if you ignored all those small little, you know, paper, paper cut type uh, payoffs, well, you might get kicked out of the group. Okay, I have one more question about these silly rules before we move on to our closing questions. Um, 
you know, if you look around in the world, there are a bunch of rules that kind of resemble silly rules, but maybe they come in two kinds. One kind is the useful version where they, like you said, are going to give you information about the stability of the entire kind of rule set, or they're useful for kind of bootstrapping important rules. And then the other kind are, I guess you might just call them like truly silly rules, where maybe they once were useful, or maybe they're useful in very different contexts. But in this context, they are in fact doing nothing. They're just kind of hurting us and we're still like hanging on to them. Um, maybe an example might be food prohibitions or taboos, which once were useful when we had when we were less able to um, treat food and <laughs> hold higher hygiene standards and now they're not doing much at all um, and I guess my question is how many how many of these kind of silly looking rules in the real world do you think belong to this first useful category and how many are just in fact genuinely useless <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I have an estimate I mean I, I think it's so I very much hope that we are, are starting a lot of research on silly rules because um, there isn't actually a lot of research and, and um, it's not, and not very well theorized. So it might be things like it's a marker of group membership, like you mentioned from, from an earlier conversation you had. And I'd say, okay, but now why are you signaling your membership in the group? So we have a story about that, which is the group consists is, is structured by its rules, its important rules. And so you're, you're showing your membership in the group because it's the group that is enforcing the rules and we're operating at that, that the group is its rules. That's, I think that's an important point. So I don't, I don't know how many, uh, but, but, it, it, but here's what I would say. I think you're exactly right. Uh, we're pointing to the fact there's a lot of different kinds of rules out there. There definitely are some that are just holdovers from this used to be an important rule and now it's not. Um, and uh, it may actually be a very costly thing right? So like gender differences and so on, we, you know, there's probably a bunch of those that, well, there are a bunch of those that are just silly rules that historically made it, may have paid some important roles in coordinating family decisions and investments. And this was actually one of the first articles I ever wrote as an economist was on a coordination model of the sexual division of labor. It said, actually, a sexual division of labor, the idea that women's jobs and men's job were, was performing a function, in, in, in sort of a hunter-gatherer environment, which we don't need anymore, but nonetheless, it's become a big organizing principle. I think there's a lot of silly rules that uh, aren't performing much function, but this is why the important thing is to step back and say, so what about the structure? Like, where do they come from? The fact that we have a bunch that we have, we're so good at creating silly rules. You know, you know go on a camping trip with your friends. I guarantee after three days, you're going to have a whole bunch of rules, some of which will be important and some of which will be silly. Um, I think we just produce them at great rates. And there's a question of, okay, so how do we, how do we trim them? How do we, how do we get rid of the ones that don't matter? And, uh, but recognizing we wouldn't want to get rid of all of them, right? That if you got rid of all of them, you actually would be living in a world that was much more uncertain because you'd be throwing away important information about the stability of your group. And ultimately, that is the key to your success, is the stability of your group. Now you'd like to go change a better group, you'd like to change the important rules, you'd like to spend less time on the silly ones. But um, I certainly don't think anything I said stops us from critiquing, that's a silly rule, and that one we should get rid of, right? 
no problem there. Yeah, I guess as we're kind of moving into the the closing sections and things, I want to take maybe a bit of time reflecting on this like silly rules literature, which you said that there's loads of exciting things to do, and also the regulatory markets and this kind of, I guess, more like meta law uh, research as well. We've got a bunch of kind of um, graduate students, PhD students, researchers, but generally lots of people kind of early on in their academic career who I'm sure are kind of like looking for interesting things to study. Are there like any particular areas where you would say, hey, this is really exciting stuff and I wish somebody was doing this work? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I think there's real urgency for these, uh, some real uh, increased modeling, theorizing about human normative systems. I think I worry a great deal about the fact we are trying to solve the alignment problem. We are trying to make sure AI is safe and we're not destroying our societies with extremely simple-minded and just wrong understandings about the way human norms and normative structure work. So that's why I, one of the, what I sometimes you know present the silly rules work as this is a demonstration project of why you need much more careful study and theorizing because holy cow, it's more complicated than you thought. Um, so, so I, I really do think that, um, uh, computational models of normative systems, I am looking for postdocs in that, please reach out if anybody wants, uh, to do some work on this. I think computational models of how norms evolve, how legal infrastructure interacts with that, you know, let's, let's answer Finn's question of, you know, how do, how do groups figure out which silly rules to get rid of and which ones to keep, where do they come from? Um, uh, all of that, uh, ha regulatory markets, thinking about the act. So, so really what I'm speaking to is the, uh, the need for much more advanced social science, cognitive science, uh, integrated across the social sciences and humanities in these areas. Um, but if, if there was a shorthand for it, I'd say we need a whole lot more computational social science and I think one of the key things is for it to be informed by this much richer understanding of human normativity. I mean, one of the things I haven't emphasized as much here is um, maybe the silly rules does it. The most important thing about our normative infrastructure is it can take on any content. If you manage to coordinate your group around that's not okay and we're going to punish you for it, you can put any content you want in there for good, for bad, but this idea that there's universal human norms, there's things that are always true, we can figure out what those are and embed those in our machines, I just think that's really wrong and it's dangerous. And any norm you, you identify for me, I think I can, with enough time, find you a human society that says, oh no, we, we think that's okay behavior. You think it's outrageous, but we think it's okay. Um, and, and so I think what's important is to study that normative infrastructure and then figure out how we're going to get machines to be good at playing with our normative, like being a participant in our normative infrastructure. So computational social science, I guess, might be the, the shorthand for that. Fantastic. And we will link in the write-up to a talk you gave about why the science of AI needs a science of normativity, which I suppose summarizes what you were saying. Um, but the penultimate question we ask all our guests is, what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? 
So this is a challenging one for me. I've been thinking about all this stuff for so long, and part of what I'm celebrating is the fact that I'm back to ideas I, I started off with 35 years ago. I think probably uh, I hesitate to, to, to share this because my basic stance on all of this has always been one of tremendous optimism about the capacity for human societies to change in the ways we need them to change. And of course, that's what I'm talking about. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of clanging the soup pans to say, hey, wait, look, 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 we don't understand this stuff well enough and it's a problem. So that's on access to justice, it's on regulatory technology, it's on how do we build safe AI. Um, I think I have always been tremendously optimistic about that. I, th I would say in the last couple of years, I've become more worried about the fragility of that and um, I probably put a higher probability on we won't be able to do this uh, than I have in the past. But let's say I don't really like to end there because I certainly am not stop. I won't stop working on it and I don't think anybody should stop working on it. If anything, maybe we just have to realize it's more urgent than we realize and we all have to become more flexible in our thinking. Well, let's interpret that as a call to action rather than a note of pessimism. Um, last question we ask everyone is what three books or articles, films, whatever, would you recommend to anyone listening to this and interested in finding out more about all the things we've talked about? Oh, there's so many. And I, I know you have uh, sort of, you know, books on the alignment problem, Stuart Russell's Human Compatible, Brian Christian's The Alignment Problem, sort of just basic text now on understanding you know what what we're what we're what we're facing what we're dealing with um so l let me let me mention books that have, i think would be mind expanding for people from this so so one is a book uh gosh i think i read it probably 20 years ago uh is joseph tainter the collapse of complex societies um it's actually, uh, I've heard a number of people mention it lately, um, which is, is a delight. It's, um, it's, it's an archaeologist who backed into uh, sort of an economic theory of the idea of complex infrastructure and how you get diminishing returns to an existing complex infrastructure. It initially solves your problems well. And this might be the way the Romans organized their societies or the way uh, the Mesoamericans uh, stored grain, traded it, uh, massive architecture that was used. But it's, it's the idea that there's a, a, a technology that evolves for solving the problems of complexity, but that there's diminishing returns. As, this, as the society successfully becomes more complex, that original solution ceases to work as well and collapse happens because the societies don't figure out we need a new technology. So you can see how that's been influential for me thinking about that's where I think we are. Um, and maybe I think we're closer to that collapse possibility than, than I did in the past. So that's, that's one. Uh, another book that has, is, is a lovely book and I think is really uh, very helpful for thinking about the complexity of normative infrastructure is Christina Bicchieri, The Grammar of Society. And uh, I, I, I love her work. Um, I, I, she, has a, she has a different way of thinking about norms than I do. It's very it's compatible, it's coherent, but, but we're not completely aligned here. But I think, I love this, first of all, just the title, The Grammar of Society. 
right? That we, you can't construct communicative sentences without grammar. And I think just that deep understanding of normativity um, is, for, for those who have not looked at sort of theories of norms, and then she has wonderful series of papers and experiments and uh, uh, just well, well, re will return the effort. So if you don't know about her, you should, you should read her work. The last one is fiction. Um, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro's uh, recent novel, Clara and the Sun, which is both just a lovely, lovely book to read. Um, I read it in a single day sitting by a pool in Carmel Valley. So that helps probably my, my sense of it. Um, but it is so effective at getting, so Clara is, is an artificial person and it is written. She, it's, it, she writes the book. She's the first person narrator in the book and, you know, giving some access to thinking about, okay, what would it mean to have artificial people in our in our midst and and how would we treat them it's a beautiful book and it's really mind opening julian hatfield thank you very much thank you this has been terrific that was julian hatfield on regulatory markets silly rules and why humans invented law i should also flag that julian has written her own book called rules for a flat world why humans invented law and how to reinvent it for a complex global economy it's also out now as an audiobook, so chances are, if you enjoyed listening to this interview, you'll also fancy giving this a go. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Jillian. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. We'd be really grateful if you could also leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's also a link on the website to an anonymous form or you can get in touch with us directly by emailing feedback at hearthisidea.com. And lastly, if you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can also leave us a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>